The first equal pay debate in the U.S. started way back in the 1860s. And it ended in the most American of ways, with a sex scandal. It was a huge, it was a huge scandal. That's Jessica Zapero. She wrote This Grand Experiment, a book about when women first went to work in the federal government. In 1861, at the start of the Civil War, the government is running out of money to pay federal workers. It needs cheap labor. The treasurer of the U.S. at the time is Francis Spinner. And he has this great idea. Hire women. When he went and inspected the treasury, he found men performing tasks that he thought were better suited to and more cheaply performed by women. Spinner is trying to keep costs down, so... He goes out and offers women $600 a year for these jobs, half of what the men are making. It's the first time the government hires women, and it's a big opportunity. He gets tons of applicants. At first, women are happy to have the jobs. But even then, D.C. was an expensive place to live, and they soon start agitating for more money. They petition Congress... They write letters to newspapers, like this one, which ran in the New York Times in early 1869. Very few persons denied a justice of the principle that equal work should command equal pay without regard to the sex of the labor. But it is one thing to acknowledge the right of a principle and quite another to practice it. Women are known to be as good printers, teachers, telegraph clerks, etc. as men. But fewer occupations are open to them. Their necessity for employment is greater. Therefore, their services can be obtained for less. They say, we're doing the same job. It's galling to watch men continue to get raises when they're already earning so much, and we're doing the exact same job. Why are we different? What makes us to differ from them? It's a reasonable question, and Congress doesn't dismiss them. By 1870, a handful of bills have been introduced that would give women equal pay for equal work. The U.S. government had officially taken up the equal pay debate. This is where that sex scandal comes in. It's the first time men and women are working together and, well, there's some romance. A few relationships become public and it's a huge deal. Newspapers cover it, politicians talk about it. It's so notable that guidebooks to D.C. make sure visitors know about it. It's impossible to tell how many of these female clerks are pure women or how many impure. The black sheep are greatly in the minority, but are still believed to be numerous. It's salacious gossip, and it creates this idea that women working at the Treasury get paid not to do clerical work, but to be sexually available to men. Essentially, as far as some people are concerned, this is government-sanctioned prostitution. As Congress is debating equal pay, one faction brings this up. You have men saying, we shouldn't be employing women at all. They're all prostitutes. Why are we even talking about this? We should just fire all of them. None of the equal pay bills pass, and it's partly because of this thinking. This is really significant. It sets the standard for the next 150 years. This is how women enter the professional workforce. From there, private companies also start to hire women to do clerical work. And taking a cue from the government, they pay them less. And perhaps had the federal government equally rewarded male and female labor at this point, maybe private labor would have paid them better as well. 
But instead, Congress sent this clear message that it was acceptable to treat women as exploitable and marginal employees, and to women themselves that they were fundamentally inferior to men. When you look at the world, you know, we're 50% of the population. Like, where is our place? Like, where is our value? Women deserve equal pay for equal work. The tender line helps to keep women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. What have you done for the women according to the promises of the platform? Well, I'm sure we haven't done enough, and I'm glad that you reminded me of it. Girl power. Equalization between the sexes. Women. What do they want? We want to end gender inequality. And to do this, we need everyone involved. The government's policy is that women should get the same pay that men get for similar work. And here are the all-male nominees. Welcome back to The Paycheck. I'm Rebecca Greenfield. In this episode, we're going to explain why that 19th century sex scandal still matters. It established women in the workforce as cheap labor from day one. A big part of the pay gap has to do with what's called occupational sorting. This is the idea that even today, women still do women's work. They're teachers, nurses, secretaries, and those jobs pay less. This is what happens when you have 100 years of rules and laws that dictate what women can and can't do. Laws based on the idea that women because we can have babies, are fundamentally different from men. Take those Treasury secretaries. They just wanted equal pay for equal work. But that question quickly turned into a debate about whether women should really just stay home and what would happen if we didn't. This idea that women's biology and sexuality dictate what we should and shouldn't do for work comes up again and again. Ask my colleague Claire Suddeth to talk with me about how this idea has played out over time and what it has to do with the pay gap. Hi, Claire. Hi, Becca. Okay, so take me back to the 1860s. Why was it such a big deal for these women to be working? Well, up until this point, for the most part, women weren't really working at least not for pay. I mean, the 1860s is the decade where slavery is abolished, so many black women aren't even free. So when we talk about women working for pay, we're largely talking about white women. And maybe if they're single, they might be a teacher or a governess. But for the most part, they got married and stayed home and had kids. They had a lot of kids. I think the average around that time was about seven per mother. This was also a time period, by the way, when women were quite literally thought of as the weaker sex. The weaker sex. What does that mean? It means essentially that people thought women were not as intelligent or hardworking or able to do things as well as men. There's this really famous quote from a brief by Louis Brandeis in 1908 before he became a Supreme Court justice. And he talks about this. And these are his thoughts, but they are representative of pretty much everyone's thought. Women are fundamentally weaker than men in all that makes for endurance, in muscular strength, in nervous energy, in the powers of persistent attention and application. He also goes on to talk later in this brief about how women shouldn't even hold jobs that require them to stand for long hours because their feet were delicate and their legs weren't, quote, good sustaining columns. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so women are just not fit to work. They're either pregnant having children, or just, like, their bodies aren't made for it. Yeah, or their feet are small. Yeah. But what if women need to make money? 
obviously, even at this time, even among the people who hold these beliefs, they do know that women do sometimes have to make money themselves. They could be widowed, their husbands could be too sick, or, you know, God forbid, they could be single. So they started to pass these laws saying, okay, how do we fit these weaker beings into the workforce? The laws that they pass are called protective laws. And I don't know about you, but I had never heard of this when I first started reading about it. So I found a historian to explain it to me. I'm Nancy Wallach. I'm a research scholar in the Barnard History Department, and I specialize in American history and especially in American women's history. What were they protecting women from? It's always changing. In the progressive era, women reformers did advocate the laws on the basis of, of, of women's uh, work in the, in the home. They valued women's work as homemakers, as, as mothers and wives, more than their roles as, as workers. You want to preserve women's health so that they can have healthy children, which is good for society. That was essentially the legal, the legal argument. There were a ton of these laws, and they got really specific. Ohio, for instance, had 22 laws to keep women out of specific forms of work, not just mines, uh, but also uh, elevator operators, crossing guards. Why couldn't women be elevator operators? The idea was that if a woman worked as an elevator operator and she ran a man up to his apartment late at night, something untoward might happen, so... Some places said no elevator operators. And New York City actually said, okay, you can be an elevator operator, um, but women just can't work past 10 p.m. So that also took care of women in bars or restaurants or anything like that. They were essentially protecting women from getting in situations where something bad might happen to them. But at the same time, they were also kind of protecting men from these wanton women who would be late-night elevator operators. We just can't conceive of women outside of their sexuality, basically. They're either at home having babies or outside having sex. They can't just be an elevator operator doing their job. No, absolutely (laughs) not. (laughs) How do these laws play into what women earn? You have all these women who do need money. They need to work. But you have this limited list of jobs that they can hold. So you essentially get this supply and demand problem. You have way more women wanting to work than they can If you're an employer, that's great for you because you don't have to pay them that much because there's always going to be some other woman willing to accept the lower pay. She goes through the mill of New York's 800 employment bureaus. She learns that although lots of jobs are listed, there are 10 applicants for each one, girls with city references and city experience. But are you sure you haven't got something for me? We don't take inexperienced girls. What about race? This is all happening just a few decades after slavery is abolished, right? Yeah. So black people were limited in the jobs they can and cannot do by law. It was even more explicit and more segregated than laws created for women. You essentially have the economy divided up into these, you know, jobs that are appropriate for white men, jobs that are appropriate for black men, white women, black women. And this occupational sorting that we have now You can trace it back to this time period where even today, black women are twice as likely as white women to hold service industry jobs. Right, because back then they weren't even allowed to hold the better paying jobs. And that was true for anybody who wasn't white. So that's kind of where we are. And things only really start to change because they have to. But with our country in peril, 
The women of America rallied to the support of their men. So I know about World War II. Women enter the workforce in large numbers. And we have Rosie the Riveter and women going into factories. Yeah, and it's not that we have Rosie the Riveter. We have two and a half million Rosie the Riveter. And here in this almost the last great industry we thought could be handled only by men, these mothers, wives, and sweethearts came to stand shoulder to shoulder with them in almost every capacity. Women entered the labor force in huge numbers in a way that they never had before, and they were holding jobs that had previously, because of these laws, been thought inappropriate for them. Were they getting paid equally at that time? It's interesting because if you're a factory owner and all your workers go off to war and you start hiring women and paying them less, when your workers come back from war, are you going to pay them their old wages that are higher or are you going to stick with the lower wages you've been paying women? So labor unions actually started lobbying for equal pay less because they were concerned about women than they were concerned about the men returning from war getting their old wages. Is this all women? No, it's not all women. Uh, This was largely just for white women. Technically, President Roosevelt outlawed racial discrimination in the war industry in 1941, but it was pretty inconsistent, and things really only opened up for black people towards the end of the war, when there just really weren't enough white people to fill all the jobs. What happens when the men come back? Women have shown what they could do in war, and now that the fighting is over... Women intend to show the world what they can do in peace. When the men come back, the protective laws come back. Wait, the protective laws came back? Yeah, they actually had been in place the whole time. They just were usually written with this little clause saying, you know, in case of emergency, we don't have to do this. And World War II was definitely an emergency. So men come back. The women get pushed out of the workforce. Also, very quickly, you end up going from, you know, like 24 percent of auto industry workers in 1944 were women. And two years later, it's 8 percent. It's like, boom. So you get from Rosie the Riveter to Leave it to Beaver, essentially. When do the protective laws go away? They go away when two things happen. The first is a smaller step. It seems really big at the time. Mr. President. The democratic platform in which you ran promises to work for equal rights for women, including equal pay. I must say I am a a strong believer in equal pay uh, for equal work, and I think that uh, uh, we ought to uh, do better than we're doing. In 1963, President Kennedy signs the Equal Pay Act, which means that a woman holding any job has to be paid the same as a man. But that just means of a job that she's already holding It doesn't mean that you have to allow her to hold any job whatsoever. That happens because of the Civil Rights Act, and actually it sort of happens by accident, which is something that has sort of been lost to history, but I talked to Nancy about it. The accident was the addition of sex to Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act was protecting people against racial discrimination. And Title VII of the Civil Rights Act is racial discrimination at work. For at least a decade, uh, Southern congressmen had been trying to add a provision about sex to civil rights acts in order to uh, uh, topple the acts. 
they would say, okay, well, if you want us to treat everyone, you know, equally according to race, what if we treat women equally too? And people would say, well, that's ridiculous. And so then all the bills would just die. So 1964, this comes up again. A Virginia congressman does the same thing that had worked in the past. But this time, lawmakers on the other side called his bluff. They were like, fine, we'll treat women equally. So the word sex gets added to the Civil Rights Act. The law passes. And then, boom, women can, in theory anyway, hold any job that they want to. So we ended discrimination basically on a dare. Yeah. And when you think about it, essentially that means we passed this law, this very big law, changing something quite fundamental in our economy without really believing all the stuff behind it. So for the next 50 years, we've essentially been fighting about what that means. The Equal Pay Act and the Civil Rights Act were really important. Women are no longer barred from working in the most lucrative fields. And once we get to those fields, we're supposed to get equal pay for that work. Those two pieces of legislation did a lot to bring women's pay more in line with what men were earning. But it doesn't end there. Because now, businesses have to comply with the laws. And in a lot of cases, that means they have to change the way they operate. And they don't like that. They don't want to be told who they can or can't hire and how much they have to pay them or not pay them. They want the flexibility to do whatever they think will make them the most money. And companies argue, literally argue, because they get sued and defend themselves in court, that they have business reasons for discriminating. For example, in the late 1960s, it was pretty common for the airlines to require flight attendants to be female and single. When they got married, they got fired. When United Airlines got sued, the airline defended its practice in court by saying the irregularity inherent in stewardesses' work schedules was incompatible with the women's role in married life. Businesses push and push against the constraints of the Civil Rights Act. And they haven't stopped. But sometimes, women push back. My name is Lily Ledbetter, and I live in Jacksonville, Alabama. In 2009, right after Barack Obama took office, he signed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. It was the first piece of legislation he signed, and it closed a legal technicality that companies used to work around the Civil Rights Act. Claire talked to Lilly about what it was like to win on the facts and lose on a technicality. Today, Lilly is 80 years old. But in her younger years, she worked at a Goodyear tire plant in Gadsden, Alabama. For 20 years, she made tires. Mainly the first job I had, I had three tubers. One produced tread for tires. That meant having the right formula, having the right rubber, the right uh, chemicals. to. She liked Goodyear. She had a 401k. She had benefits. She got time and a half when she worked overtime. And by 1998, she'd worked her way up to manager and was closing in on retirement, which would come with a pension. Then one day at work, someone slipped a paper into her employee mailbox. To this day, she has no idea who wrote it. And it had four names. It had three men and mine. Somebody has told me what all of our base pay is. Those names on the paper were all managers, just like Lily but she was making up to 40% less than them. Lily thought about those numbers. 
Social Security, her pension, they were all tied to her salary. I got home. I told my husband, I said, I have to go to Birmingham, Alabama and file a charge with the Equal Employment Commission because this is not right. And he said, well, what time you want to leave? Lily found a lawyer, and in 2003, they went to trial. She had a strong case, and she won. They had a four-by-eight white board drawn off with all of the males' names and my name in the tire room where I worked, and our starting pay and our ending pay all through the years. And, I mean, you could just sit there and study those numbers, and you knew, you knew, even the lowest-rated man. Uh, there was one guy rated a little lower than me, but, man, his salary was twice mine. The jury awarded Lily $3.8 million. The judge reduced it to 360000 but it was obvious to everyone that Lily hadn't been paid as much as the men who held the same job. For a company the size of Goodyear, $360,000 was not a lot of money. But they didn't want to pay, and they didn't think they should have to. The way the Civil Rights Act worked, an employee had 180 days to file a lawsuit if they'd been discriminated against. Lily's team argued that the 180 days started when she learned she was being paid unfairly, when she got that slip of paper. The company argued no. The act of discrimination began with her first unequal paycheck, and those 180 days had long since expired. Goodyear appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. Other businesses wanted them to win. In a supporting brief, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said it wasn't fair to businesses if that 180-day period could last until someone like Lily found out. They called it an unwarranted and excessive burden on employers. The judges ruled 5-4 to four in favor of Goodyear. Lily lost. In a rare move, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg read her dissenting opinion aloud in court. In our view, the court does not comprehend or is indifferent to the insidious way in which women can be victims of pay discrimination. This was not the intent of the Civil Rights Act, Ginsburg pointed out. But the fact remained that Lilly had lost. She never got a dime. Two years later, Congress passed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. That 180-day period during which people can sue? Now it resets with every unequal paycheck. Since then, countless women have filed suit under the law. A lot of people have filed on that. A lot of people have gotten money, and I like it. Ultimately, equal pay isn't just an economic issue for millions of Americans and their families. It's a question of who we are and whether we're truly living up to our fundamental ideals. That is what Lily Ledbetter challenged us to do. And today I sign this bill, not just in her honor, but in the honor of those who came before. All these laws try to fix the same problem. Men and women have never been valued the same way in the labor market. Not since Francis Spinner hired those secretaries because he could pay them less. Women's work has always been worth less. We also haven't really gotten over that sex scandal. The idea that women are sirens and a mixed workplace is always in danger of becoming a whorehouse, that sounds ridiculous today. Or does it? The vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, he won't eat lunch alone with a woman that isn't his wife. 
He says it's part of a religious practice that asks men to avoid even the possible appearance of impropriety. This attitude is surprisingly common. Female staffers in Congress say plenty of male representatives have similar policies or practices. On college campuses, some male professors avoid closed-door meetings with female students. Practices like these have real consequences for women's careers and their earning power. They also suggest that women, just by being women, create problems for everyone. Next week on The Paycheck, we're going to hear from people who don't believe in the pay gap at all. And if there is a pay gap, they know who's to blame. Um, women don't negotiate as much as men do, and that could explain it. I think we're a little bit more reserved when it comes to fighting for what we want. I think we're a little bit more scared. I think overall, women are willing to accept less than men. Thanks for listening to The Paycheck. If you like this show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to rate, review, and subscribe. This episode of The Paycheck was reported by Claire Suddeth and hosted by me, Rebecca Greenfield. It was edited by Janet Paskin and produced by Magnus Henriksen. We also had production help from Liz Smith, Jillian Goodman, Francesca Levy, and me. Our original music is by Leo Sidron. Carrie Vanderyacht did the illustrations on our show page, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash paycheck. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. 